let's not do um let's not do any stand-up comedy right now let's just do a show you think that's a great idea our show Welcome to Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, the internet's favorite podcast about why we're wrong. Uh, I'm Sophie, one of your co-hosts. <laughs> Wait, you, you changed it all around. Wait, do I have to be you now? Is this, like, <laughs> is this an April, April, <laughs> April Fools? It's way too late for April that. April Fools. Ta- tax Day Fools, you fools. <laughs> you jerk, you moron. Why are you paying taxes? Don't you know smart people don't pay taxes? Uh, what are you doing to me? The internet's favorite podcast hey. about why Amos and I are wrong. And I'm Sophie, one of your co-hosts. And, and I'm Amos. I'm, I'm a different one of your co-hosts. <laughs> You're impersonating me. Not the same one. Uh-uh. Hey, welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening. Yeah. You're welcome, you say. You're welcome. Okay, thanks. What? Um, you don't know. I was giving the listeners time to say you're oh, welcome. Oh, this is like a call and response. Yeah. Look, they our listeners, they've been, honestly, they've been rude, very rude <laughs> lately, and I feel like no one taught them good manners, so. I feel like that was like one of those books on tape you had when you were a kid. Maybe you didn't, but I like, twing, turn the page. Have you turned it yet? <laughs> oh, never yeah. had those. They're like, I know. had the um, I had the Ewoks Battle for Endor book on tape. What? Yeah, I mean, I guess it wasn't a book on tape. It was like a, a bad made-for-TV movie on tape. <laughs> uh, I feel like we could really delve into that. But we're not going to, because instead we're going to talk about something different. Yep, very, very different. Yeah, we're actually, I just realized this. I said it before we started recording, that we're sort of both wearing our professional hats a little bit more in this conversation, this planned conversation than we have, than we sometimes do. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Amos to talk about psychology, and I'm gonna ask Sophie to talk about history. Yeah. So, am I going first? You are going first. Uh, yeah. Yep. You're do going we, first. I do we first have a, Do we have any business we need to? I, I mean, I guess the the, the 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 biggest business, the only real business we have, would just be that. Um, we're probably going to have one more episode in this mm-hmm. season, mm-hmm. and we're going to have to we're going to have to work on that one because I'm running out of time. To be honest, yeah, I know. Um, the Ewoks are coming. Excuse me. The battle for the Ewoks. It's like it's getting down to the wire. Right. I don't know. <laughs> trying to have make you, it interesting. Have you even ever seen Ewoks Battle for Endor? No, of course not. <laughs> but it sounds very um, urgent. Yeah. Right. It's it's um. I I think it's awful. Okay. Well, let's not go down that rabbit hole then. Yeah. Then that, but, that Ewok hole. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we're going to try to squeeze in one more on this season. And, and if we do, it'll be awesome. It'll be the greatest one. Yep. Yep. Should we give, wait, should we let people know what we're doing for yes! that one in case they want to? Because that way we'll actually do it. It'll yep. be like accountability. So next, next episode is going to be 100% fish sex. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Uh, I I mean I guess correct. Yeah, so um, we're going to be reading Shadow Over Innsmouth, which we discussed last episode in the H.P. Lovecraft section, and but I and hadn't I read. Regretted not. Yeah, and I you know I I I made the mistake of you know I should have cut uh, at the Mountains of Madness because it's it's kind of long and doesn't I think do anything that was like super relevant for our country. Yeah. You, do you know why I left Mountains of Madness in there? Mm-mm. Because of the giant albino cave penguins. <laughs> I 
I thought you'd appreciate that. I do. I do. Yeah. Of course I do. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll be, we'll be reading shadow over Innsmouth and we'll be watching the shape of water. Yes. So, um, I'm excited because I've yeah. been meaning to see that movie and I, I just need that extra kick in the pants to do it. So we're going to um, do it. And you know, so that'll be our next episode. So if you want to yeah. follow along at home, go ahead and read that and listen, watch the other thing and, yeah. and you'll be good to go. And then we'll take a, a indefinite hiatus, but we'll, yeah. we'll let you know what's happening. Exactly. Yeah. Um, any other business? I got none. Uh, likewise. So, uh, take us away. Okay. So, um, I want to talk to you, Amos, about this recent, or it seems recent to me anyway, trend in psychiatric care uh, and theory and sort of um, conceptions around behaviorism. Um, So I'm familiar with and teach a bit about sort of the history of psychology and psychiatric treatment. Um, And I've noticed, again, I'm not an expert, of course, but I have noticed a way from a move away from sort of like dynamics and descriptions that use words and concepts like the unconscious and the psyche to rubrics of mental health and mental illness and now behavioral health. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, And it seems to me like we've moved away from conceiving or we've moved from conceiving and treating the illnesses as one of the soul to the mind and now to actions and behaviors. And at some level, this seems like an odd inside out way to conceptualize an interior problem, yet it's very popular. Um, and, uh, in, in many cases really, really seems to work. Um, but I don't understand why it's become so standard and so much the, um, kind of basic way that so many clinicians are thinking, um, to use this rubric of behavior, but my question is, so what is this trend all about? How do you feel about it as a clinician? Am I just being sentimental with some kind of weird preference for like 19th and early 20th century, like metaphors of the soul? Am I being completely out of touch? Tell me why I'm wrong. Oh, these are great. These are great questions. Thanks. Um, I'm excited. So I, I think, what you think, well, I think in order to answer this question, I, I, we need to go back to the early modern period. What? Okay. The early modern period. <laughs> uh, so, right. So, so, <laughs> like um, before say the mid to late 1700s. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so there, there was this, um, division in modern philosophy between oh, it's a philosophical issue. rationalists and empiricists. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just giving like a little bit of like context to no, like this is great. what behaviorism is and sort of where it comes from philosophically. Cause I think that will uh, help to answer some of these other questions. Mm-hmm. So broadly speaking, the rationalists were from continental Europe mm-hmm. and believed that reason could lead to truth on its own mm-hmm. and that by by like reasoning about things um you could you could you know make arguments for the existence of god for instance or the existence of an Im- immortal soul and things like that they were very interested in in just sort of using pure reason to try to deduce these important important things about the world mm-hmm. empiricists on the other hand were um largely from um 
uh, well, I guess they were England, Scotland, Ireland. They're mm-hmm. the sort of like Anglo tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would tell you that's ridiculous, that all, all knowledge ultimately comes from sense experience. Um, yeah, and anything that doesn't come directly from sense experience is is not really knowledge. Um, and I think that division between uh, this continental rationalist tradition and the, an Anglo and eventually Anglo-American um, empiricist tradition sort of carried from philosophy into um, psychology. Okay, but trace the trace the sides for me because I'm still confused. Like, which one becomes behavioralist? Oh, the empiricists. The right. sense perception. People. Yeah, yeah, because they're interested okay. in things that are directly observable. I see. And if it's not directly observable, it's not really real. And does it have to be observable by an external person, or can it be observable by you yourself, the person experiencing so it? So you, it can be. Well, right. So 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 Hume, David Hume, who was like. The, the the big daddy of the um, <laughs> British empiricists mm-hmm. um, and like a major t- just towering figure of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, he did a lot of sort of introspective mm-hmm. stuff and, and did really, really super interesting things with it, like arguing against the existence of a self. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, well, you know, I look within and all I see is se- like sense experiences and and this sort of parade of thoughts and emotions hmm. and stuff but that's really beautiful and like kind of postmodern yeah you're mm-hmm. you know people actually draw connections between hume hume's introspection there and and buddhism mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. He says, but there's no you know anywhere i look i don't find a self i don't find anything called a self all i find are experiences that's interesting because obviously when you think about something like dbt there's definitely a buddhist influence there yeah right yeah yeah dbt's dbt that's dialectical behavioral therapy it's got a, a lot of stuff about like kind of multiplicity of self that's in there um so right and, and then, its founder is is like a very serious practitioner of meditation right zen meditation right. yeah um so um yeah right so so freud was was very influenced by continental philosophers like yeah i was gonna ask you to uh situate freud for us here super influenced by nietzsche and Mm -hmm. uh schopenhauer Mm -hmm. um, but especially nietzsche and like a lot of well, and, and Nietzsche was was really influenced by Schopenhauer, right? Of course. Um, but like a, a lot of what Freud is doing is just sort of systematizing and psychologizing um, Nietzsche. That's so interesting. I mean, because that's I an think exaggeration. If, I but, mean, I I think if Schopenhauer is also like interested in at least in like Asian philosophy, right? I mean, he was. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess I mean, none of this like, has to mean like, anything. Like, I think it's it's probably best if we leave if we leave the the asian stuff out of it because like i think it, i think ultimately it's just going to confuse the issue because i mean schopenhauer was interested in this weird you know 19th century right german reception right of, exoticized something yeah with yeah. based on bad translations and, and sure. his own preconceptions but i think it's interesting okay so so you've situated freud on the continental side the rational yeah, side rather than the well, ex- experiential side so let's i mean that's i mean you're you're drawing these lines not me i, I, know, I you I can know. tell me whatever you want not i would i would say like f- let's let's just say that freud very much comes out of the the um 
continental intellectual tradition. Mm-hmm. And and there were, you know, there were a lot of changes in sort of what the the that tradition was about in between the early modern rationalists and Freud. Like a lot a lot happened in between. Yeah, for sure. But, and and but, he's so much a creature of his own milieu. Yeah, absolutely. But but the basic idea of like, you know, there's maybe more to the world than just sense experience and mm-hmm. there's there's like important things that can be learned about the world um that don't necessarily um come directly from sense experience mm-hmm. right I'm, so I'm he, speaking it's all yeah i was so just gonna was say i was just gonna say it, um it makes me think of the moment and i don't remember where it is but he sort of talks about his quote-unquote discovery of the unconscious. Yeah. Right, where he's not like, I, you know, I invented this concept to help people think about their own right. experiences. It's a metaphor. Right? He's like, no, I, I, like, I discovered this thing that is there in some way. Right, right. Which, um, you know, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer had already basically <laughs> come up with. Um yeah right so so right the unconscious is a great great idea he's like it's the mind but it's a part of the mind that we don't have access to mm-hmm. and an empiricist would be say like that's doesn't make any sense right there like, would you're be talking, no such thing that's metaphysical nonsense yeah right like the whole nature of mind is to be like aware like that's right right like that's that's its whole mm-hmm. thing so mm-hmm. a, 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 you know uh Piece so of where do mind these things... that's beyond the possibility of experience is not that's something that doesn't exist but doesn't that it's not that's not really what he's saying right he's saying we do experience well um, we experience like what... the effects the epiphenomena sure and like the contents of the unconscious can be uh brought into consciousness right but like at that the, point they're not unconscious anymore the but metaphor just, like, of the guy banging on the outside of the door that's my uh, favorite one. Ooh, I don't think I know that one. Oh, okay. So this is a great one. It's from, I think, this. it's either the first or the second lecture on the origins, uh, history and origins of psychoanalysis, I think is the title. Okay. Um, it's lectures that he gave, um, actually in the United States, which right. is interesting. And he he talks about, like, well, what if we were sitting here and somebody made a, started making a disruption and, and was, like, d- interrupting and being loud and angry and throwing things around? Well, well, what we would do is we would eject him from the lecture hall, and then we would think that we had peace. But actually what he would then do is, like, yell and scream and bang on the door and actually be even more disruptive and distracting than when he was here. So what we actually have to do is open the door, bring him back in, reintegrate him, talk to him, mm-hmm. sort of figure out how to... Like what? Ask him. Like what? What are you so angry about? What are yeah, you right. yelling about? Oh, yeah. That's really interesting. It's a beautiful. I mean, those lectures are full of beautiful metaphors that are so poetic and and so sympathetic that I find them like very appealing. I think I think Freud. He's like such an influential and towering figure uh, who's was so revolutionary, but also such a product of his time. I think he's it's easy. He's I think he's easy to discount. Oh yeah, for, people like, some hate of the him. Crazy stuff he said. Yeah, he said real crazy. Yeah, things for and sure. It, and it's yep, and it's it's easy to forget that the entire framework that we use for, I mean, that like the, the entire framework that people use to criticize him is something that he basically created. Yeah, I always say to my students, you know, before, and this is like not totally true, but it's almost it's almost true, which is why I say 
say it, you know, I say, I I tell them like, okay, so if I came in today and I told you, oh, I had this dream where um, I had to be in a play and I'd never been to rehearsal and I didn't know my lines and it was opening night and I I was just like totally distraught. What would you say about like how I was feeling? And they always say like, oh, you're anxious. And I tell them like before interpretation of dreams, you wouldn't have just said that offhand. That would not have just been in your sort of like repertoire of ways of understanding dreams and emotional states right yeah yeah um yeah right it's it's hard to hard really hard to overstate how influential freud was and you know i you know i'm taking these digs about how he's just ripping off nietzsche but that's that's not really true i mean nietzsche was a big influence but freud was a an incredibly um original and innovative thinker doing really important stuff i agree and one of the things that i always say is that like Oh, such a beautiful writer. And I always say, like, some of the craziest, most objectionable things that he says, when you think about Vienna in the turn around the turn of the century, you know, he was even right. Like, there are these things where you're like, well, that is like how what people were like and what what the concerns were. And yeah, I mean, or, or he said some crazy things that were actually like at the time kind of progressive. Very progressive. Yeah. Um, right. But that are, you know. Not not so much today. No, not so much. Um, but, you know, politics change. Yeah, they have to. Uh, yeah. So Freud, you know, he, he comes to America. He gives these lectures. He ends up moving to the States and having a huge, uh, huge impact on intellectual life in the States. But there was already this sort of Anglo-American tradition of psychology that was sort of And he ends up in England, here. right? England? Oh, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. I guess yeah. He ends, yeah. Um, Right, there's already this Anglo-American tradition of psychology that had sort of had this parallel development, mm-hmm. sort of based more on this um, empiricist tradition. And mm-hmm. then you got guys like B.F. Skinner and... Right, I was going to uh, ask you about him. Yeah, I forget who the other big one is. Well, because it's funny because, I mean, when I was in high school and taking like a, a pretty dopey like class on... It was a sort of social studies class, but it was, it was sort of psychiatry psychology i don't mixed with other things but like one of the things that was so laughable to all of us i mean we read about we didn't read any primary sources but we read about you know william james and freud and Mm -hmm. all these guys and um and and skinner was like the craziest one you know we were all just like that's completely ridiculous like we accepted we accepted freud and all these you know wacky things about penises but like when it came to the skinner box we were just like this is just ridiculous and i think a lot of people feel that way and yet it seems to be the dominant mode right now well i i don't i don't think it is okay or, good not or not in the way that not in the way that skinner talked about it so so you know skinner and i don't know those other guys they were like serious about behavioral behavioralism and i you know i think they would say that like all of this talk about the unconscious is is nonsensical Mm -hmm. like i think they would mean that it literally didn't make any sense Mm -hmm. you know because there was the the like one of the really dominant anglo-american philosophical modes at at that same time was logical positive positivism Mm -hmm. which would hold that any any statement that doesn't refer directly to sense experience is uh, is nonsensical. Like mm. like the same as being like argle bargle. <laughs> um, and so you you know you can see how that's behaviorism is really just like adop- adapting that to psychology. Where can like, you can you like draw that a little? We're bit saying more like instead of saying like any any statement that doesn't have uh, that doesn't refer directly to sense experience is nonsensical. You're saying like any understanding of 
psychology that's sort of based on internal states that's not based on directly observable behavior is nonsensical, nonsensical. Or, or not useful in some yeah. way. Yeah, and and the only the only effective interventions are ones based on directly modifying behavior. So that's really interesting, and I'm learning a lot. Can I just ask a, a like a provocative question? Yeah, go for it. So man. in that same, that same class, I think, or maybe it was a different dopey class that I took in high school. We talked about like medicine, uh, meaning of the body specifically, and we learned about things like signs and symptoms. And, you know, I think in sort of regular parlance, we just, we mostly just talk about symptoms, but to mean both, but doctors, physicians, you know, signs are things that they can observe. Symptoms are things that the patient feels and reports. So for example, nausea is a symptom, not a sign. Mm -hmm. Vomiting is a sign, right? Mm -hmm. So how does it make any sense that you can be more generous with um, experiences that can only be felt by the patient and not from the outside? How is it that, that physicians can be more generous than, than those who are supposed to treat like mental illness? Uh-huh. Right? Like, like physicians are saying like, Oh, you're nauseous? Okay, like I'll take your word for it. But it seems like the same, like the equivalent, you're saying that behaviorists would be like, well, I, I don't, you know, your nausea is just a, it's not real because it can't be. I mean, obviously nausea is a, is a sense experience. I'm, I'm sort of saying yeah. whatever the equivalent of that would be. Like your, your sadness or something is right. like not a, that's a symptom, not a sign. And I unless think you're crying, they would want to know what the behavioral, I think they'd want to know what the, yeah, what the behavioral signs are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would look at working with those directly. And mm. if, if you're, and again, this is like, I don't know, thirties and forties and fifties sort of behaviorism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you don't think that's actually sort of really in the mix in the same well, way. That... Okay. So let's, let's jump ahead to, to the present day or, Excellent. or the last, the last several years. And I, I think what you've got here, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to jump quite there so so the the dominant the dominant mode of like therapy that people went to psychotherapy mm-hmm. for like a long time mm-hmm. was essentially psychoanalytic mm-hmm. um so that means you know as as freud said in your little statement there you know you're working to to help integrate the yelling man mm-hmm. and figure out why he's angry there's a lot of talk of you know uh uh making the unconscious conscious, conscious right. and um you know in real psychoanalysis you've got people like meeting three times a week mm-hmm. for an hour lying on a couch um and and there's like there's like a lot of growth and development within the field of psychoanalysis away from freud and or mm-hmm. or like you know correcting for some of his uh excesses and and uh you know and some mistakes other mistakes and wackiness yeah and and some uh, some real important developments too that aren't just just correctives but but that mode was really dominant for a long time then in like i don't know maybe the 80s this thing called uh, managed care started to pop up (laughs) um yeah right where uh health insurance companies were like maybe we don't want to pay large amounts of money for these people to see a therapist three times a week for 10 years um with no evidence that it's beneficial Maybe mm. that's not maybe that's not a business we want to be in. Um so I think I think this move toward 
behaviorism is mm. really a move toward um, showing evidence that the treatment is effective. This is interesting. So this is one of those moments where I think um, your orientation in sort of material, economic, I mean, usually you say technological, but sometimes we modify for economic or material change is sort of the root of intellectual change. And mm -hmm. in this case, I would totally agree. Yeah. Right. right. Like, like, I mean, this, and this is true. There was a lot in, of money at stake. Yeah. And it's true in a lot of things where, I mean, education, right. Where it was sort of like, there was all this stuff we kind of thought worked. And then all of a sudden people who are paying for it, they want proof that it works and right. if, and they want proof right now and they don't want to wait for it. And, um, you better gather the kind of evidence that they want to accept as evidence and everything else sort of like you're done. Right. And, and, um, it's easier to show that a behavior has like the frequency of yes. a behavior has increased or decreased yes. than to show whether or not you've successfully, um, uh, integrated, mm -hmm. you know, various, uh, split off self states, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, that like that's, that's sure. really tough to show. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think it's a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, uh, of a, uh, lamp lamppost problem. What does that mean? So the, the, there's a, uh, this guy sees a, a drunk man on his hands and knees underneath at the bottom of a lamppost. It's late at night. And he's like, he's on his hands and knees looking at the ground. And the, and the, the guy says, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, Oh, I dropped my keys. I'm looking for him. He's like, Oh, did you, did you drop them over here? The guy says, no, but this is where the light is. Mm. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lamppost problem is where we, we focus all our attentions on what's easiest to measure or mm -hmm. easiest to observe rather than mm -hmm. what's most important. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's uh, nice. I like that. Yeah. And you'll, you'll see this a lot in, well, in a lot of, a lot of areas where like, there'll be a lot of research or thought dedicated to something that seems like exciting at first. And then it kind of peters out. And the, the issue was just that there was like, they were able to measure it or able to observe it. Not that it was actually important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that's so interesting just from historical perspective, just because it sounds like maybe the symptoms had also changed. I mean, ob they obviously have, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Right. But like, but like when you read the lectures, um, from Freud, he's talking about his treatment of hysteria, which mm -hmm. of course is not a diagnosis that exists anymore, but right. He's talking about women, predominantly women who would suddenly be come blind for no physiological yeah, reason or, or they could paralysis couldn't swallow. of a limb. Right. And like, and then that would go away when they talked about it. Yep. Right. And like, he has that beautiful metaphor about somebody who's standing in front of the monument in, in London and just like weeping as if like the fire just happened five minutes ago. Um, and he says, right. Like ladies and gentlemen are our hysterics suffer from reminiscences and like they, they did. Right. And, and like previously he talks about how when he had tried to, when he had tried hypnosis, cause that was a thing that people were really yeah. into. And he did a he lot of like, that uh, early he, on in his career. He did. And he said, you know, people would reveal all these kinds of things that had been bothering them. But then when they came back into their sort of fully conscious state, the symptoms didn't go away. They only went away when they talked about them, when they were like actually really present and not mm -hmm. hypnotized so it's interesting that like he could be like this you know physicians have determined that this woman has nothing wrong with her eyes or her brain or her optic nerves but she can't see and now she can see again but somehow like 
that's not what was happening in the 80s, right? There wasn't historical blindness. There was, like, something else no. that needed right. to be observed but couldn't be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I right. mean, so that's... Like depression that's all... and anxiety are not hysterical blindness. Right, right. I, yeah, and that, the, like, the history of, like, what... Of, of like what psychological problems people are reporting is, yeah. is super interesting yeah and, and it's it, yeah it's it's very confusing i mean there's like right. there's this book i'm trying to remember the guy i can't remember the guy's name he wrote this book about schizophrenia mm. like a long time ago he called it dementia precox um and it's it's sort of like largely been understood that that you know that he was talking about schizophrenia and mm-hmm. that's this was sort of like a foundational text for like phenomena the phenomenology of of schizophrenia and this was before that was a diagnosis that existed yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah um but then like later on some people went back and they're like i'm pretty sure like half of these people just had syphilis <laughs> i was not expecting that to be the punchline <laughs> it's like there. it's right. like like these symptoms don't line up with what we see now at all and it's like, oh, right, it's because he was he was actually just dealing with a very different problem. Hmm. Um, anyway, so or a different that, cause of the problem, anyway. Or yeah, something, yeah. Right? So, yeah. so that just makes these sort of like historical analyses of of psychological problems really. Oh yeah, it's crazy. always bad. Yeah, that's always bad. Um, people are like, blah blah so, blah was bipolar, and you're like, I, it was like fifteen hundred. What do you? I, mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so right. So paying payers, health insurance companies, largely. And, and, you know, I think governments, too, and I guess mostly in their role as, as health insurance companies, um, just got really interested in making sure that what they're doing worked. So even even more sort of, you know, quote unquote, dynamic uh, mm-hmm. modalities mm-hmm. started using standardized measures to, mm-hmm. to see whether or not they work. But it, it turns out that interventions that are sort of like built from the ground up to target standardized measures are better mm-hmm. at moving those measures. Mm-hmm. Sure. That and, makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would say like, let's go back to that street light and just say like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that the um, intervention is better at improving people's lives, but mm-hmm. it's better at moving this standardized measure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's an issue. Um, you know, cause like a lot of these, you know, the standardized measures, these are like, you know, questionnaires with like, okay, how many times in the last week, did you have trouble getting out of bed because you mm-hmm. were feeling sad or didn't have energy? You know, things like that. They have these different depression indices and all that sort of thing. And and it's just important to remember that they're not actually measures of depression. They're yeah. measures of, you know, whatever those questions are. And then we use them as proxies for depression, you know, whatever depression actually means. Um, but I think sometimes people mistake the the measure for the thing or the map yeah. for the territory. Is that what the thing that people say? I don't know. Don't, I, don't confuse you're the You're full of the interesting idioms today. And yeah. I like them all, I but maybe I've never heard Buddhist, any of them. Maybe that's a Buddhist No, I thing. like that. So I guess, I mean, I think maybe we're getting to this a little bit, but can you say anything about how you feel about this as a clinician? Um, yeah. Uh, let me come back to that. I feel like there's okay. one other thing I wanted to get at first. Sure. Oh, so also I just want to say that, that, that this this stuff is like, I don't know, the people that I talk to in the field, even the ones who are pretty behaviorally oriented, they're not BF Skinner. Like, they're, <laughs> like they're, they're not this, like, very strict behaviorism sort of thing. Like, they mm-hmm. may be sort of suspicious of non-standardized treatments and stuff, mm-hmm. um, and, but they 
I don't know. I, like, I don't feel them. I don't feel like they're talking about, you know, talk about the unconscious as like nonsensical, but mm-hmm. they would say like, I'm not really sure what to do with that. Or, mm-hmm. or you know, I want to make sure that what I'm doing is effective or, or how do they know that it's effective? So mm-hmm. we need to do these standardized treatments and standardized you know, evidence-based practices, evidence-based treatments with standardized measures and stuff. But it's more just about like, maybe like just being, like people feel like they want to stick to as close as possible to the evidence. It's interesting. It reminds me of, I mean, you can tell me whether this has anything to do with anything, but thinking about um, the way advances in neurology have, or just understanding of the brain as a physical object as an or you know as a as part of the human organism have changed the way we think about mind and soul and 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 unconscious and all these kinds of things because like where is it like where is your mind is it in your amygdala like right i mean in the same way that sort of like now that we know that the earth like there's the you know there's the plate the tectonic plates and all this stuff and it goes right straight to this molten core like where's hell then right i mean this is a theological problem where's heaven if we but, if we know that the sky isn't really i mean doesn't but, really have but god plato in it. knew that the mind was immaterial like advances in neuroscience don't don't shed any new light on that yeah but not everybody's plato i mean no, but i'm just saying that like the idea that like the mind um you know that the mind and the brain are not the same thing like that's a very but it kind of seems like you're saying some people actually i mean in conversations i've had i feel like some people think that they are the same thing and if oh no no lots of people think the minds and brains are the same thing they're just they're they're mistaken i see okay i see you think plato is right and other people are wrong not that everybody already knows what plato knows right yeah yeah. okay yeah i'm saying like like the the, the idea that minds and brains are are different or is a very old idea um you know i think I think Leibniz, was it Leibniz who really, I feel like he really had a, I think it was Leibniz had a really just very clear argument where like you can, you know, imagine something, you know, imagine a chair, you you can picture it and you can see it in your mind, but like, you know, we chop up your brain and no matter where we look, we will not find a chair. Like it's, right, it's just, for it's sure. Not there. It's but not but some people will say like there's a part of your brain that lights up mm-hmm. when you think about chairs, and maybe we can make a machine that would generate an image of a chair sure, yeah. based on your thinking about a chair. Yep. And and that seems to that seems to um, point to a desire to close the gap between. But again, I would say like we've always known that there's a, a some sort of strong relationship between right minds and brains, and we it's just like the nature of that relationship is unclear mm-hmm. that's yeah i, I mean that, that's how i would put it and not just a metaphor like hearts what's that not like, a metaphor like the way the heart the heart just is a metaphor yeah like the like when people are like yeah. i feel it in my heart and you're like well not your actual real heart though i mean yeah sure yeah okay sure yeah except for people are now saying that you should take like tylenol if you have heartache which i just find weird but anyway that's separate huh. issue entirely <laughs> Like your heart muscle actually hurts when you are like, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. Random. Okay. I mean, kind of connected. <laughs> so what do I think of all this? Yeah. I mean, what do you think of all this? Like, generally speaking, I would say I'm like, like just by disposition, I'm more sympathetic to the, like the continental tradition intellectually than to like an Anglo-American and mm-hmm. empirical tradition. But at the same time, I'm a contrarian. So like mm-hmm. whenever people are like going on about something. <laughs> I I had like this. I'm just like, I, I, you know, I just have this thought. I'm like, well, how do you know that? And I I have that reaction yeah. when I'm reading psychoanalytic theory often, mm-hmm. where I'm where the person is like 
going on in great detail about like the 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 intricacies of of these like uh, intrapsychic structures and stuff. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, okay. like those drawings in Lacan. And you're like, where, who, what is any of this? Yeah. Like, like you're using all these kind of crazy spatial metaphors for something that's ultimately non-spatial, which makes mm-hmm. me nervous. Uh, so I guess it's all to say that I'm just like pretty ambivalent about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like the idea of using evidence to figure out what works and what doesn't work mm-hmm. in treatment. At the same time, I don't really trust the evidence base when it comes to um, yeah. research into uh, uh, therapeutic interventions. Well, and it seems for a lot like of the same reasons that I don't trust the evidence base when it comes to like, um, you know, some of the research on nutrition. Yeah, well, <laughs> like it I think also, it's, it's compromised by by funding sources and um, people like just desperate to find positive effects. And I think I think researchers do all kinds of. Um, all kinds of things to find positive effects in their research. Right. And there's a difference too, between qualitative and quantitative kinds of results. That's true. So sometimes the preference for one over the other can be detrimental to things that can only be observed in a more qualitative way. Yeah. Well, I would say that, I mean, that's maybe that's even like a great way of like getting at, I mean, I think that's a great way of getting at like what, what science actually does Hmm. or, or like, like the harder a science is, the less about qualitative results Mm -hmm. it is. And the more about quantitative results and scientific advancements, like methodological advancements are usually about ways of turning, uh, qualitative observations into quantitative ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's what these standardized measures of, you know, symptom scales and personality measures. That's, you know, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, assign quantitative measures to things that are ultimately uh qualitative so do you think it you you mentioned before like you weren't sure that 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 even those even if those measures appear to be recording improvements you're not sure that that's actually evidence that people's lives are being improved yeah yeah i mean maybe maybe it is right maybe it is but like and you don't and you don't don't know know. whether it's improved more or less than before the measures came in right because like you don't have yeah to go on I mean, and, and, um, I don't know, like like, one, one interesting research finding is, you know, you you mentioned CBT, that's cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which was developed by a guy named Aaron Beck, probably starting in the seventies. And it, it was sort of taking behavioral therapy, which is like direct behavioral interventions and combining it with, uh, cognitive interventions where the therapist helps the, the client or patient identify cognitive distortions or, 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 um, you know, just like, um, sort of mistakes of in the way they're thinking or helps them consider alternative interpretations for what they're, mm-hmm. what they're seeing and, and that that was found to be very effective. But it turns out that, um, the size of that effect has been shrinking since then. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. But it's <laughs> Nobody like, knows, huh? Yeah, no one really knows. Like, m- maybe just the research in the 70s was bad. Maybe it was bad research. Huh. Um, maybe there's something about people's exposure that there's, like, a tolerance. I I, I don't know huh. why that would be. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's it's confusing, though. Yeah, it's fascinating. One, one thing that, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um 
Yeah, it's confusing. But you do what you do because people need help and you want to help them. I mean, yeah. I, maybe maybe you, but I don't maybe mean, I don't do one. It, but people do. You don't want to help anybody. Yeah. So I'm just joking. You know that. Yeah. 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 So yeah, right. So so basically, people like I I just think everyone's wrong all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so like the, the that's why we have this show. Yeah. Right. So the behavior people are wrong because they're trying to. Uh, you know, they're relying on faulty research and inadequate proxies for what they're actually trying to um, treat. And the uh, the psychodynamic people are wrong because they're like fuzzy headed <laughs> and uh, and use all these uh, metaphors that don't actually refer to anything real. Mm. So, right, well, OK, so last last thing I'll say about this is that even if the. Even if CBT and DBT are effective, that doesn't mean that they're effective for the reasons that the people who invented them think that they're effective. Yeah. And they're and not this, necessarily effective across the board for everyone with every problem. Well, absolutely not. Right? Absolutely not. And, you know, DBT was specifically developed to be used with uh, for treating borderline personality disorder and right. um, it's used. For, it's generally used for people with problems with like emotional regulation. You mm-hmm. wouldn't use DBT to treat someone with depression, right? Um, but you might, you know, if someone's got sort of an explosive, angry personality, then then yeah, maybe you would want to treat them with DBT. But like with CBT, a lot of people would say like, like yeah, you can do CBT, but uh, and maybe it's going to be effective. But the reason it's effective is not because of the actual cognitive. Or, be, or even behavioral interventions that you're making, it's because you're creating this trusting relationship between yeah. the, the therapist and the client um, that, um, yeah, the, right. It's, it's about creating this trusting relationship. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, CBT practitioners, they're like, well, yeah, of course you need a relationship for it in order for it to work because otherwise it's just some stranger telling you that you're thinking wrong. <laughs> um Right, but it's like okay, well, maybe maybe it really is just the relationship then, and not not the fact that some smarty pants is telling the patient that they that they're thinking stupid. That kind of sounds like teaching, right? Uh, like I could have I could have lots of different pedagogical frameworks and interventions, but what might not really what might matter the most is whether my students trust me and feel safe with me exploring their thinking. And so maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't matter that I like use a Deweyan um, model versus like some other model. Right. It matters that like the students feel that I'm somebody who can help them think things through and learn things. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Hey, I, I've got to stop there because um, yeah, we're kind of going over. We're going over, and and I I need to get out of here before too long. So let's. Uh, I'm going to read my thing now. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Great. So I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I'm I'm a big fan of Mike Duncan's podcast, Revolutions. He's done a, a series on the English, American, French, Haitian, South American, Second French, and 1848 revolutions. So he just he just wrapped up 1848. Mm. And they're all great. Um I, I have I've also just lately on Twitter, there's been a lot of arguments about the Enlightenment for reasons that I won't get into, but um, yeah, so I, I would say that the, 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 what exactly the legacy of the enlightenment is, has been in, in liberal values and what those are and, and who, who has claimed to them have been sort of hot topics lately. 
Um, but so one of the themes that I pick, have picked up is uh, this convergence between nationalism and liberalism in in modern Europe, and I and I don't quite get it. Mm. So here's what I think I understand: the, uh, liberals in eighteenth eighteenth and nineteenth century Europe tended to be bourgeois, and they were supporting um, some measure of political freedom. They liked constitutions, limited democracy, or, or some sort of democracy, uh, property rights. You know, they, some of them were constitutional monarchs and others, or, or monarchists and others were Republicans. But um, they were also a bunch of virulent nationalists, I guess. Like during the French Re- Revolution, there were all these liberals who were pushing for war against Austria and we're really big on that idea. And then in 1848, um, German liberals were, um, were the ones really pushing for unifying Germany. And in the meantime, Hungarian liberals were, um, imposing Magyar culture and suppressing ethnic minorities within the kingdom of Hungary. But I don't understand quite what the, what the connection is. Is it something to do with the idea of, of, a like a constitution being something that's like giving birth to a new nation and tying a nation together. Um, oh, I had another th- I thought as I was reading this, and now I forget what it was. Oh, yeah, like during the French Revolution and, and in Germany, like there was a lot of move to like get rid of like old feudal privileges and sort of rationalize administration within, uh, like within France or, or, or within the German, the between the different German states with like duty free zones and stuff, but um, like is is that the connection? Uh, my my best guess, I guess, is that it's some kind of revolt against the transnational noble elite. Maybe I don't know. Tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> well, you've got a lot of the pieces, and um, I would say that it's just not all know, fitting together for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and certainly, like different historians would help you fit it together different ways. So I'm 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 not going to be sort of purport to be um, to be an expert on this. But um, I, I would say a couple of things, and I and I think that you're kind of onto something here. So so I don't. So I'm not going to tell you that you know why you're wrong exactly. But I I want to kind of clear like lay a few things out. And you did mention um, a number of of places that are expressing nationalism in different kinds of ways. And I, and I would sort of want to like um, clarify that a little bit, or, or maybe not clarify, but just um, ex- expand on this. So, okay. so, so um, when you're thinking about, when you're thinking about the moment when nationalism as a set of ideas becomes really powerful and really important, um, I think it's fair to say that those ideas are sort of crossing borders in all kinds of ways, and they aren't necessarily tied to one kind of polity or another. But it's important to take national kinds of are. right, um, right ideas of of what it means to to have a nation um, are 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 site specific in their interpretation and in mm-hmm. their execution. So there, so if you think about this thing that. Um, we imagine to be the quote-unquote um, uh, ethnic nation-state, right? Which, which, which we now, I think a lot of people, we may be passing out of this, I hope we are, but for a long time, I think people felt that this was the sort of natural or eventual or final or better or whatever, some kind of state that um, 
uh, sorry, uh, mode, right, that states should kind of take, like that there should be this sort of contiguously bordered um, territory, right, territorial nation state that has um, people in it who have some commonality around ethnicity, culture, language, um, those kinds of things. And I say imagined or perceived because we realize that it's, it's, it's completely made up. I mean, it, it's, it's not ever really true when it, it, when it's the most true it's happened by force, right. By, by, by expulsion or, um, or language suppression or, uh, assimilation, all those kinds of things. And in the places that seem the most to have done that the most to themselves, say England and France, they yeah. also have like giant empires where lots of people don't, first of all, aren't contiguously related. You know, they're not right. Like India is, well, not, is not connected to Britain, right? Yeah, right. Um, I mean, also, also, I think you know, we talked about this a while a while back. Like, they're just France, especially, is just less linguistically homogenous than we tend to think it is. Sure, sure. You know? But so, so just just thinking about these ideas as as like powerful ideas. You know, there's there's a difference between um, the nationalism in a place where, um, so let's say in a in a multi-ethnic empire like the Ottoman Empire or the Empire of All Russias or the Habsburg Empire, where um, people who are interested in their own language, culture, ethnicity that sort of feel like that entitles them to their own ethnic territorial nation state, right? They might be thinking about nationalism as something that looks like independence. Whereas in a place like you mentioned Germany, Italy might fit into this category too, um, where people have a commonality of language and culture and even ethnicity, but they don't have that. They have sort of um, more disparate territorial, um, sort of disconnected or fragmented, we might say, um, territorial chunks, right, where they're, they're ruled by different people. They might be looking at nationalism as something that has to do not with independence, but with unification. Mm-hmm. When you've got right. a place where people are maybe already have those things, um, and, and of course nationalism always has or, or almost always has something to do with superiority. So, um, right, we don't want to be in with those people because we're better, right? Sometimes it doesn't doesn't explicitly have to do with that, but very often it does. We've got those things already. What you start looking at oftentimes with you mentioned virulent nationalists, right? You start thinking about conquest, right? We're entitled to more. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, I, I often talk about, like, with my students, when you think about the Great War, which I know is sort of later than you've been talking about, but when you think about it, right? But um, I mean, our- like, we often, people often talk about the Great War as, like, where nationalism really hit its stride. Sure. And, 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 you know, you can also talk about the Great War as a, as a disagreement about what Europe is supposed to look like. Is it supposed to be these big sort of autocratic multi-ethnic empires or is it supposed to be territorial um, ethnic nation states? So, uh, and, you know, that, that doesn't quite work, but, but it's one way people think about it. Um, when you think about the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the throne of the Habsburg Empire, um, he goes to Sarajevo to say, when I'm emperor um, of Austria-Hungary, there's not going to be any territory, new territorial nation-states emerging. You're not going to get independence. The empire's not going to be fragmented. It's not going to happen. The stuff that's happening in the Ottoman Empire not, is gonna, not going to happen on my watch. And he's assassinated by a, a Serbian hyper-nationalist. Mm-hmm. What I always say to my students is, you realize that the kingdom of Serbia actually has existed already since 1882. 1886? One of those. Um, there's already a small territorial nation-state for Serbs, right? It's a constitutional monarchy. It's the kingdom of Serbia. It's small. It's there. Um, that's not what Gavrilo Princip is 
right? He's right. not. He's not like. Oh, what we want is um, is is independence for Serbs, right? He wants something different because there's still a lot of Serbs living inside of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? So, like, you know, these things are sort of interconnected. Uh, so that's one but thing. But what I do they have to say. do with liberalism? Great, we're getting there. Okay, I don't okay. know that they always do. I think that's that may be a bit of a fallacy. Okay. However, um, some of these things are emerging around the same time, and you're absolutely right that it has to do with a kind of movement um, away from the power of um, of monarchs, whether they're absolute monarchs or autocrats, or even if they're kind of more constitutional monarchs, but they have like a, a nice big a chunky staff of um, or, or sort of cohort of aristocrats with them. You said sort of political freedom, and I'm going to say more cynically what a lot of liberals who are bourgeois, right, who are middle class um, professionals are interested in is more power sharing with so-called non-elites, which is what they might think of themselves mm-hmm. as. Of course, they are elites in lots of ways. The piece that I think maybe you're missing is the rise of capitalism. Okay. Because um, one of the things that uh, people who are interested in a kind of liberalism, who also sometimes are nationalistic, who also sometimes are really interested in capitalism, is to move away, and this is sort of a Marxist way of thinking of things, but I think it works here, is to move away from these like feudal systems where aristocrats have the power. And you're right, borders don't really matter quite as much if all your daughters are getting married off to the to the emperors of other um, multi-national, uh, multi-ethnic empires, right? You're like giving your kids away. Yeah, I mean, for I think diplomatic reasons. Is it? I mean, is would it be true to say that in a, in a lot of ways the um, the royal families of Europe felt more kinship with each other than with the people that they were ruling? I don't know if that's fair because I don't know enough about their sort of emotional state. But I mean, I think I think that was perhaps the perception yeah, that people okay. had. Um, but it doesn't. But it doesn't always go that well. Like for example, um, right? Uh, Zarina Alexandra is German by birth, and she feels very much that in marrying Nicholas II, she has she calls it her mystic marriage to Russia. She she converts to Russian Orthodoxy. She be, she feels very much that she has become Russian, and that she sort of loves the Russian people. But during Great War, everybody thinks that she's a German spy. So right, like <laughs> the, yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's complicated, but right. So, folks who are like, we want some kind of parliamentary like Maria, system. Uh, Marie Antoinette in the yeah, in the Austrians. exactly yeah, same yeah. kind of situation. But if I'm a if I'm a like a a, a middle class um, wealthy professional, I'm who's never going to get to be in say. I don't know the diet or something because I don't, right. I can't be in the house of Lords cause I'm not a Lord. Um, I'm never going to get to share power in the way that I would, if I were a, a monarch or an aristocrat sort of in that circle. Um, but I have money and I feel that as maybe a lot more shifted, money than a lot of mm-hmm, nobles sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, you know, I just feel more relevant because capitalism is becoming the main mode, right? It's not about, um, it's not about these kind of like feudal economic system so much. Um, so I'm interested in having that kind of power. I have this money and right. I mean, thinking about my belonging to a certain kind of group that we kind of like to call the nation. Um, when you think about France, you can think about Abbe Siez, who was this very weird guy and such an interesting figure. He He's sort of present in all these different phases of the revolution and the Napoleonic period. But he writes this piece called What is the Third Estate? Right. And of course, the Third Estate includes, you know, really poor peasants, 
right? That's most of the third estate, but then this small group of, of professionals and, and bourgeoisie. And he sort of says like, you know, the third estate is the nation. Like it's not the king. It's not the clergy, which is interesting because he is a member of the clergy. It's not, um, the nobles it's it's the third estate that are really that that create the wealth of france that that um constitute frenchness and that therefore they should have political power and that's sort of a, a contrast with like louis Couture saying l'état c'est sure. moi where yeah is, for like, sure I, no i am the state and yeah mm-hmm. um yeah so i i just was right jotting down notes here and i was right the 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 country as belonging to the people who live in it or the the people who speak its language versus the country as the personal possession of the king. Yeah, that's important. And I think the the other piece that I don't want to lose track of just yet um, before we kind of move on, but, but one of the things that um, is different between one of these sort of territorial nation states like France, the idea is that your loyalty as a citizen or a subject, if it's Britain, right, is to the state. Um, but in a multi-ethnic uh, empire like the ones we're talking about, like the Habsburgs, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't really matter so much, right? What, right? So, so in France, say, right, it's about the state and Frenchness, which has something to do with language and culture and maybe ethnicity and the kind of food you eat and the kind of sense of humor that you have, right? All that stuff. In the Habsburg Empire, it matters only that you're loyal to the person of the emperor. Mm-hmm. You can you could be whatever ethnicity you want. Um, I mean, there's ethnic hatred and there's hierarchy and all those kinds of things, but nobody's going to try to right like nobody's going to try to Russify you or something, right? Or Frenchify you or Anglo Anglicize you, right? The idea is you could be re- whatever religion or whatever ethnicity or speak whatever right. language, but you just need to be sure that you're actually loyal to this d- dynastic family. Right until 1848, when the Hungarians really did try to uh, magyarize. Well, sure, right. but it but it turns out well, but it's not until 1864 that they get this sort of special status in the empire, and so it becomes the Austro-Hungarian right. Empire. Right, right. Um, you know, and and yeah, there's all kinds of like terrible things that people do to each other. Uh, but the question is whether it's an official policy or not, and who who is allowed to do it to each? Who 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 gets to do it to mm-hmm. who? Yeah, but right, I like that. That I, I mean, it is, it is. Yeah. Uh, and this is why just just like another thing like this is why some people who this is why some people are really suspicious of liberalism because they're like it's not so progressive it's not so about, so much about freedom it's not so much about um all these things that we want to think it's about it's about it's about a different group having power but it's not about sharing power with everybody yeah though so, i mean i guess i mean right yeah yeah yeah. I'm not saying you that that's say my particular could... opinion on liberalism, yeah. although I, I think it's actually a very compelling argument. It's important, right, to say, like, yeah, there are these moments in the French Revolution when, like, the, the, the urban poor of Paris come into the revolution and they really push events. But um, And there, there are moments when the, when the poor peasants are the ones making the revolution, but very often that's not the case. Yeah. And it's disappointing because you want to believe that, like, it's the people rose up and... and it, well, in, in the... the... Duncan's series on 1848 it really like um I don't know if I don't know if this is right but in a lot of the revolutions just if people don't know about the revolutions of 1848 man they were crazy there was just yeah they're really interesting craziness going on all over and I I all I knew before listening to this podcast series was that there were revolutions in 1848 (laughs) I remember in American history class 
hearing that a bunch of people came to this U.S. then mm-hmm. to get away from right. the revolutions, but I had yeah. no idea what they actually were or what happened. Well, part – I mean, they're so important and they're so interesting and they're all different from each other even though they're all kind of involved with each other. But I think part of the reason that there's not – they don't – you know, you like don't learn about them so much is that – Although they're influential, and I don't want to say they're not, they're not successful. Right. Most of them are squashed. A, and the only no. one that actually does anything politically, changes anything really politically, structurally, is in Denmark. Oh, Which okay. nobody cares about anyway, right? We're like, eh, yeah, no, small, I mean, we, we learned one. a little bit about Holst- Lessig Holstein, but then kind of sure. left left Denmark. Yeah. And I don't, don't really, I don't think, I'm not sure if you actually got to where things ended up with them. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's missing here is, is romanticism, which I'm, well, which right. I'm really okay, so hold on enamored to that, of. Cause so. I, I want to come back to that. Yeah. But, um, what was, Oh, what was, what were we talking about just right before that? Um, critiques of liberalism as not sort of being what it purports to be, which oh, is yeah, true yeah, yeah. of the enlightenment as well. Right. If it's, a, if it comes yeah, out yeah. of the enlightenment, the enlightenment has a, just the exact same problem. Right. It it sort of wants to say these universal things, but not grant them universally to all people. Yeah. So, um, oh, just sort of one of the themes that seemed to come up in about the revolutions in 1848, it seemed to me like a a lot of it was like there was like the the liberals, like radicals who tended to be like students and Mm -hmm. uh, like urban artisans, it seemed like. Yeah, they tend to be more cash poor. Yeah, Yeah, cash poor and more more radical. And then... Mm -hmm conservative nobility and and people Mm -hmm. aligned with them and it seemed like the course of the revolutions had a lot to do with like which two were ganging up on the third (laughs) like when the liberals and the radicals were teamed up they could handle the they could like really cause trouble for the conservatives but when the conservatives were able to peel the liberals off from the radicals um then then the radicals ended up getting suppressed well and it happens i mean you got to throw the king in there too sometimes because very often i mean one of the things that happens in denmark is that the the king realizes that it's better for him if he gives the non-aristocrats what they want and sticks it to the aristocrats like he can actually ally himself with the common people which by the way is something that um like the the windsors like the guys who are in in not in charge but uh technically on the throne in britain still do all the time Mm -hmm. yeah interesting it's a good strategy um wait there was something i said i wanted to come back to was it romanticism yeah romanticism right so i i had often especially with german nationalism in my in my head i just sort of uh, associated it with with romanticism um and i I don't know what else i was going to say about that but just but then sort of like learning more about 1848 in in and seeing it, the nationalism associated with political liberalism. But I guess I don't know. Maybe were German were German liberals romantics too? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, remember that. Remember that. Um, you know, the 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 great sort of fairy tale collectors, folk to American collectors of um of of like German language. The Grimm's mm-hmm. are expelled, I think, expelled for their um, participation in 1848. So, like, there's a connection there. And so, I mean, I think, like, when you think about, so, so, so romanticism is very varied. And, yeah. you know, it's also, and romantic nationalism is also very varied. So I, it's hard to want to, I mean, in the time we have left, I don't, I don't really want to bra- yeah. paint with a super broad brush. Fair but I, but I would say like somebody like Hera, um, you know, he says, basically, he's like the most romantically 
unnationalistic nationalists that you can find because okay. he basically says like every people i mean he's a nat- he's nationalist he's a nationalist in the sense that he, he believes there are these things called nations right and these peoples and that they have they, they have some essential qualities and that they have some essential connection to one another and to the land and the landscape that they inhabit. But he basically is like, they're all great. Um, and they're all beautiful in their own way. And they should all, each culture should be preserved. I mean, he's just like a multiculturalist. Um, and if you, if you read like Isaiah Berlin has a like very, um, sympathetic essay about, about this guy, um, sort of like, you know, he's not saying any, any one nation is better than any other nation or that they should hurt each, have any right to hurt or, you know, hurt each other or just, place each other or dispossess each other he just really likes that you know everybody's different and they all have their own cultures but you know some people really feel like well if we can say that our language and our culture and our folk tales and our common people blah 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 all have some essential connection to nature and to the landscape from whence they spring Mm. and then you say well but the thing is that like you know, these mountains are kind of like those other mountains over there. So we should have those mountains too, because what, you know, that <laughs> we have an essential connection to them. And what do we because, do with people right. who, who seem to move from place to place and not have any strong connection with any particular mountains? What about them? Right. I mean, then, then that's, I mean, there is romantic anti-Semitism that's sort of has some of that there yeah. right, in it um, for sure. But I, I mean, I tend to be a defender of romanticism just because I think it gets really misunderstood. It obviously there are like great crimes associated with mm-hmm. romanticism, but I think what happens is that people want to let the enlightenment off the hook as like the good guy and romanticism because it's a critique of enlightenment or because it's a reaction against enlightenment. I, I don't think it's either of those things only. I think it's a correction is what the philosopher, the romantic philosophers I think were interested in kind of, adding to or perfecting the enlightenment but nevertheless like i think very often we sort of want to say like enlightenment good romanticism dark bad like full of all these troubles that will continue to plague us into the 20th century and i don't think that's quite right but it certainly has a role to play Mm -hmm. that makes sense um so i guess my answer to you is that like Yes, historically, things like liberalism and nationalism and capitalism all emerge around the same time. And there are definitely powerful individuals who are all three of those things. But lots of people were only two or only one or none. Um, And so, like, it's a nice story that we tell ourselves and it's helpful for understanding things. But I actually think in real life it's a lot messier. Okay. And I'm not sure that, like, it has anything to do with the United States. So being, like, oh, yeah. the like the emergence of liberal nationalism in Europe, like, has anything to do with where we are right now? I'm just, like, I'm not totally sure that makes any sense. I Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to – I wasn't going to go anywhere, like, anywhere close to, with like, that. contemporary yeah. – America in the stuff. It sounded like maybe that was the that was the conversation you no, were originally. No, the, attention I mean to. The, the conversation on Twitter has been like there's these like jerk offs who who go are going on and on about enlightenment values. And, I was gonna say on Twitter there's these jerk offs who are going on and on is pretty much just the story of Twitter. You don't like need any more details for that. These spe- these specific jerk offs are going on <laughs> and on about enlightenment values and uh how awesome they are and and how no, they're like the no. real and and like no, you know not and like other people would be like yeah but dude but what about the racism and they're like that's not enlightenment I'd be like but like mm. allow me to quote john Stuart mill <laughs> <laughs> and and 
you know, there's like this this species of of asshole who who <laughs> refers to himself and it's invariably himself as rational and and yeah. people who you know disagree with him as irrational and sure um you'll see this with like the um professional atheists uh and um you know it's coming up it's coming up a lot of the discussion now also has to do with like um race science and like iq racial iq no. differences and stuff and, no. and political correctness and it's, it's which like it's oh just well, well i mean political correctness aside well like ra- the idea racial, that like ra- oh the only reason we're not discussing these differences between you know aggregate iqs between you know different races is is because of political correctness and other people like actually right, but, but the it's because it's that- bad science it's terrible science but also that i mean are they not aware that that terrible science comes out of the enlightenment i mean that's Right. No. Well, that's like, one of the things that 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 some Enlightenment thinkers are interested in doing. Where do you think phrenology comes? Yeah. Yeah. From? No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like, there. But that doesn't mean it's, no, it's right. We've, we've got like defenders of Enlightenment values who are like also defenders of of race science. Well, I think in some ways, so in that case, it's quite an, consistent. To be an asshole, it's consistent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, the, <laughs> but then, the but denying is, that there's like racism involved. Right. I mean, the problem is that it's not 1840 anymore. So, right. and we like, I mean, from yeah, for me as an historian, like it's totally okay to say, okay, this whole bundle of things are sort of what the Enlightenment was about. And some of them are really admirable and some of them are really despicable and some of them are kind of both and it's confusing and we can sort it out. And that's a pleasure, right? That's pleasurable for me as, as an historian and to help my students understand, right? But like that doesn't mean that I think that we should, and, and we've inherited lots of those things, some of which are admirable, some of which are not. But like, that doesn't mean that we should reenact them right now and be like, oh, yeah, like, let's all – do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, trying to say that the Enlightenment is this inherently contemporary or modern thing where it's like, well, I hope not. <laughs> you know, like, I wouldn't have even liked all of it if I were there at the time, and I especially don't want anything to do with all the whole package now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you gotta go. I, get it, I, think, I gotta but go. I I get, I've got a dog you, and a cone, and I need to get her out of the cone. Oh, buddy! I want to ask you whether this was helpful because I found what you talked about extremely enlightening, haha, and fascinating and great. Did you get some of your questions answered too? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, right. You know, I think I I learned that there there is a connection there that has to do with capitalism, but it's not like a one to one sort of correspondence between mm-hmm. nationalism and liberalism. Yeah, and I, I mean, the only thing I would say is that it, it starts to look much more like one-to-one when you have the formation of these important political parties that mm. sort of articulate these sets of values. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. And they have a right, way like of, you, like, drawing, like, people who agree on one thing end up agreeing on other things because of the association in the Absolutely. Yeah, and sense. it's really it's really important as an historian or a student of these things to kind of master those different, um, sort of understand where those different strains are. And we can sort of say like, oh, you know, this party really sort of articulates these values and wants to do these kinds of things. And this party is in opposition to that. And I think that's real important to do. But that's but at the same time, just from like an intellectual standpoint or from a messy social standpoint, it doesn't always work exactly as a framework. But it, but it did. But it did in reality come together that way Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah Yeah. all right uh any business no business all right well rosie go get your head out of a cone yeah uh well so you know stay tuned for fish sex (laughs) um 
Uh, I don't think, I mean, I can just say with authority that I will not be having sex with any fish. Yeah, likewise. Likewise, I guess. But I mean, I could like have a theme night with like some goldfish or something to eat. Uh, well, bye, everyone. Goldfish. <laughs> bye. <laughs> bye. Talk to you later. Bye.